0: Dr. Uche Blackstock is an emergency medicine physician who's passionate about addressing the detrimental effects of structural racism on health outcomes. We discuss the origins of structural racism and how this continues to influence the health outcomes of minorities. She then gives us some tools for reflecting on our own biases and how we can work to address them. In addition to patient care, we talk about improving the diversity of faculty and the importance of mentorship and sponsorship. We end by discussing something each of us can start doing tomorrow in order to address our own biases. Dr. Blackstock went to Harvard for both undergrad and medical school, did her emergency medicine residency training at SUNY Downstate Kings County, and then a fellowship in ultrasound at St. Luke's Roosevelt. She is now associate professor at NYU, as well as the faculty director of recruitment, retention, and inclusion in the Office of Diversity Affairs at the medical school. She recently started her own company, Advancing Health Equity, which aims to partner with healthcare organizations to address some of the critical factors that contribute to health inequity through educational trainings and racial equity cultural analytics. She can be found at healthadvancinghealthequity.com and on Twitter at Dr. Uche B.
1: Welcome to The Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr.
0: Bradley Block. Dr. Uche Blackstock, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. for having me. So you are the Director of Recruitment, Retention, and Inclusion in the Office of Diversity Affairs and the founder of Advancing Health Equity. So... How did this become such a passion of yours?
1: Oh, good question. So, I mean, the issues that I deal with in uh, my role as faculty director in Office of Diversity Affairs are issues that have always been, you know, very important to me. You know, as a as a you know as a physician of color, and I had the opportunity about two years ago to take on this role. And so, some of the things that I have developed while I've been in the role is focusing on unconscious bias trainings as a way to help educate other physicians about unconscious biases that they have that maybe. Sort of influencing how they communicate and make decisions about patient care. And then I started doing this work and I really enjoyed it and I got a great reception and I started giving grand rounds at other academic institutions and then other healthcare organizations came calling and I decided to start my own company, Advancing Health Equity, because I felt like it was my way to help to um, contribute to this problem of of healthcare disparities um, by focusing on educating the healthcare workforce around unconscious bias and structural racism.
0: So, so let's take a step back and talk about the the origins of the unconscious bias and structural race, racism. Right. In theory, we should all be treated equally, but we aren't. So. Why is that like how did this how did this all start if you want to talk about America specifically?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, this is such a great question. I mean, you know when we look at like the healthcare disparities um today, you know we talk about you know we're in the middle midst of a black maternal mortality crisis now where black women have three to four times more complications around pregnancy as white women, and we wonder why we're in this situation, and a lot of it you know has to deal with actually the legacy certain practices and policies that um, sort of encompass structural racism. So we talk about, you know, slavery and Jim Crow and black codes that have really led to chronic generational poverty that, you know, influences inequality, lack of access to care. And then even when the Civil Rights Act was passed in the 1960s and black people were allowed to being taken care of in hospitals, there were still issues with receiving quality care. And then there are also issues of internalization of racism. Like we know that there's data that shows that there's a weathering effect on people that actually can be passed down across generations. And so these are some factors to um, why we've arrived where we've arrived right now.
0: So Dr. Blackstock, can we take it back even a little further? Like, I, can we let's talk about even the foundations of racism, because I think in order to understand the unconscious biases, it's going to be important to understand the origin of all of this. So, right. so where did this all come from?
1: Right. And so, you know, the foundation, in order for for slavery to to persist, in order for there to be a society where one group of human beings owed oh, another group of human beings, there had to be a narrative that those people that were more, felt they were more superior held true. And that was that black people were inferior. And so there were different ways that this was communicated, right? Like there was, uh, there's phrenology where, and, and that phrenology is something that you know, originated in Germany. It's now been debunked as pseudoscience, but it's this idea that the bumps on the surfaces of a person's skull um, correlate to certain personality characteristics. And so the bumps that slip, that, enslaved Africans had were supposed to be correlated with the fact that they were tameable or able to be um, tamed. So, so obviously like there's this idea that, you know, throughout slavery in order to justify slavery, this idea that black people are inferior and that has obviously been perpetuated across um, generations, across uh, centuries, and um, it's still really embedded in, in our medical culture and within healthcare overall.
0: Right. Because everybody's the hero of their own story. So in order for these slave owners to be able to sleep at night thinking that they were an upstanding and decent human being, yet perpetrating these, these horrible things, they need to be able to rationalize their actions. And you rationalize these actions through, through racism by thinking that, that these other people are inferior to you in these certain ways. And so therefore what you're doing is is justified right al capone is the example that i that i use for this is he's the hero of his own story he was bringing entertainment to the masses so that's how he slept at night even though he's responsible for murdering countless people right. so you commit these horrific acts but you're still able to sleep at night because you find a way to rationalize it and then that crept its way into the culture and has stuck around yeah. centuries later
1: yeah, and even also in the 1800s, J. Marion Sims, which many people know of as the the grandfather or the father of, of OBGYN, obstetrics and gynecology, because he's the one who discovered the vaginal speculum. He's the one who developed surgeries to fix vesico uh, vaginal fistulas. He actually performed all of these surgeries and these experimentations on women who were enslaved. And there was one slave who he actually performed, I think, almost 20 to 30 surgeries on. And at the time, I, I believe local anesthesia had not been created yet so or developed yet. And so these surgeries were obviously very, very painful. But in order to, for him to do these surgeries on these women, there had to be this Acknowledgement that they were not he did not consider them to be full human beings, right? Because otherwise, how would you be able to justify Doing that although the discoveries ended up being leading to really ground ground big were groundbreaking and um, Contributed greatly to medicine. They were performed on uh, Women who could not give consent to the procedure
0: Wow Wow. And I'm sure for a long time, this individual's picture was up in a hall in a medical school and, uh, and actually, wanted as being...
1: Yeah, actually, there was a statue of him in Central Park across the street from the New York Academy of Medicine. And it was taken down last year after multiple protests by people who just said, "No, this is not right. And actually, it's been moved to Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, where not many people can see it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Wow. And, and to think, you know, how, how far we've come and that was just a year ago.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Wow. Okay. So that, that's that's the origins of it. And so how do we start addressing it? So if, if I want to improve my ability to treat my patients and yet want to be able to recognize, not yet, but not end yet, but I want to be able to recognize my own biases in order to improve my ability to do so. Mm -hmm. Where do I start?
1: Right. I I do want to back up just a little bit in saying that I do think that our medical education system and our training system could do a better job in terms of preparing us. So, I mean, I think probably like you, I really didn't learn about any of this in medical school. I didn't learn about the origins of racism or origins of racism in healthcare. And so I came to being a clinician almost, you know, very unprepared because I didn't know about this history. So here we are and what do we do now? You know, I think that you know, people talk a lot about unconscious bias trainings and, I, and even I provide unconscious bias trainings, but I think that's only part of it. So you can have the unconscious bias trainings where you take, I have participants take the implicit association test which is on the Harvard Implicit website, and you can take a lot of different tests. Often, I have them take the Race Implicit Association Test, and that uncovers a lot of unconscious biases that people don't know that they have. And often, people are really shocked by their results.
0: Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure most, if not all, of us would be. So, we'll definitely include a link to that in the show notes. So so we've taken the test, we recognize that we have these biases. Mm-hmm. So how do we, so so right. now that we've now not recognized it, great. I'm a terrible person. How do I improve that?
1: Right. So <laughs> you're, not, you're not a terrible person. I like to say that we're all like goodish people. We're all works in progress. And so a lot of times when I run my sessions, I tell them, make sure you have a growth mindset, meaning that realize that with effort, time and feedback that you can get better at anything. And so I say the same thing about unconscious bias that you can actually help to mitigate your bias by using certain strategies. And the, the really the major strategy that um, is often recommended is self reflection. And so you got you have your results and sort of thinking about when you say when you go to see a patient, like, is there something about this patient that is reminding me of a person I know, like, is it good or bad? So that's kind of like a priming questions that you ask yourself, just to make sure that you're not making assumptions about the patient. And so those are different strategies you can use. There actually are more advanced strategies called, like one is called stereotype replacement, like replacing sort of the Reaction that you have about a patient, so the assumption that you're making, like labeling it and saying, okay, that's not right. Let's replace this with like a positive feeling, and let's move forward. There's another one called counter stereotype imaging, where you can replace the image of uh, the person with a positive, a positive image, or like a, a positive stereotype. Like people say, oh, like Barack Obama you know, he's like a positive image of a black man, right? But these are strategies that you have to use every day. Like you don't just use them when you're seeing your patients. Use them in all aspects of your life.
0: So I just want to take a step back to the whole I'm a terrible person thing cuz cuz <laughs> I think a lot of us are going to be reluctant to even want to take the test because it might show things about ourselves that we would rather la- what we would rather leave covered and I think it's important for people to recognize that the fact that you are taking the test means that you are not. So even if you have the biases the fact that you're looking to improve on them the fact that you have them means you, that you're human. Actually we we covered exactly. cognitive biases in in a podcast a few episodes okay. ago with an evolutionary biologist, Nathan Lentz, who who wrote a book on how imperfect the human body really is, and you know the biases are there functionally to help us simplify the world so we can actually process it. So right. this is just a function of being 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 human. What exactly. actually makes you a a good person is the fact that you acknowledge that and you're you're willing right. to work on it. Right. So yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. That's what I tell people. I said, you know, we all have biases, right? Like like my children are, are biased towards me. If if you were to put me and you next to each other and ask my kids like who are you going to run to they're going to run to me right because they are biased and they, they I'm their mom you know what I mean so they're and, and that's protective to them that's like that's for survival reasons that's like that's evolutionary and I think also it's important for people just to realize that we do grow up we you know we do grew up in a society where there's a lot of discrimination and that sometimes it's it's impossible not to sort of sort of breathe that in you know even if you don't explicitly want to and so I think just acknowledging that and saying, "Okay, I I see that. I appreciate that. Now I'm going to try to do better." is is really important.
0: So, can we can we go back to that example that you used of of putting a, a positive image in our head, like mm-hmm. like Barack mm-hmm. Obama? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, can you give me a scenario in which I would use that?
1: Oh, for example, like yeah. an example would be. Um, So say that you were on your way to a meeting and you saw a black man in front of you. He had like a long trench coat on. He was like carrying a lot of bags, but, and, and and just for whatever reason your immediate impression of him was you just kind of got a little bit tense. And then like five minutes later, he actually ends up going to the same meeting as you. Like he's actually in the meeting with you and you had to have made this assumption that, this guy was actually a threat to you. And so, what you would do is we would rewind. And so, instead of that initial feeling of apprehension, you would say, you would acknowledge that apprehensive feeling, label it, and say, you know, that's, I'm being biased. Replace that with a positive feeling. Or think about, oh, I know other black men that have positive images, like Barack Obama or like Martin Luther King, you know what I mean? Like So think about that, and so that should engender more positive feelings. But again, it's something that you have to do all the time.
0: So how do I, if, I, if I'm with, say, a trainee, medical student, resident, how do I talk about something like that? Because I think, especially as a white male physician, if I, if I, if I walk into a room with a black male patient. And I say to my trainee, okay, when you're addressing this individual, if he makes you tense, think about Barack (laughs) Obama. That sounds, (laughs) I think I would be, yeah, yeah, that that sounds sounds horrible. horrible.
1: No, no, no. It's not. So, I mean, these are only, these are strategies I would talk about in a training, but the self-reflection piece is, is the piece that I think is not necessarily offensive. So the sort of a general conversation that you can have with your trainees it may not necessarily be specific to that patient but just say that I want you to before you go see a patient be really open-minded try not to make assumptions about a patient I know that in medicine a lot of times that we like to categorize patients right we have the 50 year old person with cardiac risk factors coming in with chest pain we think heart attack right so we you know we're just used to this pattern recognition but I think sometimes it's important you know we take a step back realize practice what we call a constructive uncertainty that we don't have all the information at hand. Don't make assumptions about your patient and try to go in with an open mind. So okay. I think I think you can speak generally like that, and that would be fine.
0: Got it. And it and it and it doesn't necessarily just pertain to race, right? You've got yeah, a anything. a white patient mm-hmm. with torn clothes, missing teeth, lots of tattoos. Right. You're gonna you know you're gonna walk into the room and make a, bu- a bunch of assumptions. If you have a trainee with you, make sure that the first thing you do maybe not the first but is that you acknowledge listen you're going to walk in the room you're going to see what this patient looks like you're going to have some things that go through your head that you're, some assumptions that you're going to make right, you right. need to take a step back reflect on those know that you don't know the whole story in fact you don't know any of the story right. and you need to you need to build from from there exactly okay
1: Okay. And, and a lot of times, you know, I say in my trainings, a lot of times why sometimes I will I will emphasize the race is because just because of the healthcare disparities that we have in the country are mostly the health outcomes are along racial lines. Like the most profound disparities that we have in the country are not along gender or sex sexual orientation but they are along racial lines. And so that's why I do tend to emphasize that more in my trainings. But yes, um, you can be biased about a lot of different aspects of a person down to their accent, right? Or how they're dressed, right? Or whether their clothing looks clean or not. Yeah.
0: So that's for the physician seeing patients, but but you also do this for recruitment, right? That's how you're the director of recruitment, right. retention, mm-hmm. inclusion in the Office right. of Diversity Affairs. Right. So. Let take us through the 3 steps. How do you recruit, retain and include?
1: Well, so th- so you know, in even thinking about unconscious bias in all of those different areas, so even like in, in terms of recruitment, sort of thinking about like what kind of language we use for ads that we put in, you know, magazines or sort of journals or websites to make sure that we're not being exclusive of certain types of people. And so, of course, we all have blind spots, so we want to make sure that we're as inclusive as possible in the language that we use. Um, and even in interviewing processes, you want to make sure that you you use uh, structured evaluation tools. So you always wanna ask pe- everyone the same question because we know that the same questions because we know that off the cuff interviews like where you're like, hey, oh, I'm from New York. Oh, you're from New York? Oh, cool. And you just sort of start talking about being from New York and you end up <laughs> feeling like you're developing a rapport between this person and you think this person is great. You get like halo bias. You're like this person would be great for the job when 30 minutes later, you really don't know much about their skills. All you know is that you get along really well. And so we know that that actually, that's a situation where unconscious bias could actually really flourish um, in those up the cuff interviews. So you always want to use uh, structured evaluation tools or structured processes in, in the recruitment process. So aside
0: from trying to standardize the recruitment process, that how does that help you to recruit more like, once you got to the interview? But what about even pre-interview? How do you go by... Recruiting a more diverse great. Great. medical staff. Yeah,
1: no, no, yeah, great, no. great, great, great question, and and that's a challenge because you know only four percent of physicians are black. I think another five percent are Latino. So the numbers are already quite, quite, quite small, and so we really have to be intentional about our efforts. We um, will go to certain professional organizations, so like the National Medical Association, which is the largest organization of black doctors so we'll try to focus our recruitment efforts there the same for um you know predominantly latino organizations as well and so or go to different affinity groups or actually talk to faculty of color that we have and find out if they have any people that they can recommend for positions but i will say that the recruitment part is really a a challenging piece because the numbers Already are very small, and New York is a high cost of living. You know, as you know, city to live in, and so you have to really incentivize the offer to people.
0: Okay, so now you've you've recruit, you found them, you interviewed them, you've hired them. Mm-hmm. So the next step is retain. Yes. Recruit, retain, include. So how do you retain? How do you retain a yeah. diverse? Stuff. Yes.
1: So yes, yeah, so I think um, the retaining and the inclusion piece are, they come hand in hand because you need an inclusive environment in order to retain people. So you need an environment where, you know, faculty aren't just um, surviving, but they're thriving. So where they're, they're feeling like their voices are heard and appreciated, you know, their they're unique issues that the issues that are unique to them, that they feel like they're being addressed. But I think importantly, and we see this even among um, women faculty, that, you know, mentoring efforts are very important because we know that with mentoring, if people have mentoring, that's a huge key to success and, and promotion. And so having focused mentoring programs or, you know, assigning junior faculty a mentor in the senior faculty That often helps. Uh, Sponsorship is important, so making sure that institutional leadership is aware of opportunities for. faculty of color that they may be interested in. If there is a position that opens, make sure that you are considering, you know, a diverse um, group of possibilities for that position. And so mentorship and sponsorship, we know, are key to retaining and promoting not just faculty of color, but all faculty. But we know that faculty of color, you know, definitely do have special needs that need to be addressed as well.
0: So does the mentor and does the sponsor need to look like that faculty right. number? And
1: that's such a great question because sometimes the numbers are so small that that necessarily cannot happen. But I also often tell people that, you know, your mentor does not have to look like you, but they, but they do care about you as a person and they do care about the issues that affect you. And so there's some literature about mentoring across differences. And so there, there are resources that are out there. If there is um, a mentor of a different race than, than the junior faculty member, and just sort of, you know, kind of being attuned to the, the, the specific issues that may come out of that mentoring relationship. So uh, for example, for me, but half my mentors look nothing, nothing like me, but they've been incredibly um, supportive along the way since I've been at NYU, and I, and I credit them with a lot of my success.
0: I would think that if you were to assign a mentor to a minority trainee or faculty member, that would lead to siloing. Right? Like if if you're like, well, you look like this person, so you should be their mentor, then you Mm -hmm. know, then they end up like doing your fellowship because you're their (laughs) mentor and now like you've got one department that's filled with one race and then another department like it would lead to just no
1: that hasn't happened they're they're not they're not they're not enough faculty of color for that to happen no that hasn't happened and then also i mean these are people like on both sides that especially the, the, the the mentors are people that are interested in helping out they're all all different departments and um i mean because what we've seen is that actually what does happen often is that minority faculty often don't have mentorship So that's what a lot of the literature has shown. And so targeted mentoring efforts have been shown to be really, really helpful to promotion and success.
0: So are you saying if there is someone that can mentor this? Yeah. Individual that does look like them, you should try to yes. match them. Yes, and just, if not, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. not available. Then, then someone exactly. else is is fine. Yes, or do you think you know diversifying their mentors would be more advantageous?
1: No, I mean I think that if there are enough people to mentor one person, that's great. But often that's not the case. Okay. Yeah, unfortunately.
0: Okay. So you should try and, so someone that's able to understand their experience more is going to be able to be a a more effective mentor. Yeah, Okay. Okay. Is there any advice that you give to your minority trainees that you think that it's either not necessary, that that may not be necessary to give to non-minority trainees?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I talked to a lot of our medical students and our residents. I think I think often they feel very isolated because their numbers are small, and sometimes they feel like um, the certain experiences that they have, like maybe dealing with microaggressions. You know, I had actually a student who came to me like very, very upset after she was on rounds with her team, and a patient like singled her out and basically was asking her if she had enough education or if she if she if she had a good education to be at that medical school, like, you know, where her grade is good enough, you know, and, she, and no one said anything, no one, her team, her attending didn't say anything, her her, co, her co-students didn't say anything, and so she came to me, and I just, you know, I felt horrible, but I I told her, you know, these things like this are going to happen. You try to speak up when you you can. But I also want them to know that in the Office of Diversity Affairs, like we are a resource for them. And that's why we're there. Like we're there to help support them, especially when these sort of situations happen. And we were actually able to talk to the attending in the situation. And he didn't realize, like it, it totally went over his head. He didn't even realize that this interaction was so painful and traumatic to the student and so i basically tell the students that you know we're here to support you you're going to have these experiences and, and some of them are going to be very very unpleasant and we affirm you know we affirm those concerns but we're also there to support them
0: right because because imposter syndrome right that's mm-hmm, much exactly. more prevalent in women that's much mm-hmm. more pre- prevalent in minorities and mm-hmm. that's because of everything we've been talking about today. Right. And right. so then you have some, someone calling them out and exactly. basically vocalizing yeah. their imposter syndrome. Right. And if someone's there that doesn't have imposter syndrome, right? Because right. It's, it's much less common in white males, right. then they're not going to understand that that's even a problem. Like, of course you do, your, your grades were good. You deserve to be here. Why else yeah. would you be here? Yeah. They don't know what's going on in that individual's head. I guess that kind of makes your point about trying to pair... Minority faculty with minority yeah. trainees for for mentorship and sponsorship because they they get it more. I so. know.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: Okay. So one thing I like to cover is is brass tax mm-hmm. advice for physicians, mm-hmm. right? Okay. Something that we can anything a, di- diff- a given doctor can start doing tomorrow, like put on a sticky note and leave next to my computer so that every time I go to my computer, I look at it, I remember to do it, and hopefully it becomes habit. So what should I write on that sticky note so I can start? doing better with regards to my my biases.
1: Oh it's your biases. Okay. Or, or, or anything else that we've
0: talked today about whether it's trying to recruit retain, uh, retain and include uh, you know mm-hmm. any anything that okay. we've covered today.
1: Yeah, okay. So so there's this idea So I would write two two notes. I mean two words on the sticky note um structural competency. And what that is is this the kind of this idea that has actually been in development for I think for the, over the last 10 years For this idea of structures and systems sort of influencing the health of communities, right? And and thus the health of patients. And so there's this idea that, you know, we always talk about cultural competency, like as if a physician could actually become competent in someone else's culture. But more importantly, it's understanding how systems like, you know, like structural racism can impact a patient's health. And so when you're seeing a patient, you want to think in the the larger context, of society, right? In terms of how they ended up in front of you with the issues that they're having. So I would ask all physicians really to think broadly about how um, practices and policies have influenced your patient's health status.
0: That sounds complete anathema to that recent article that came out in the Wall Street Journal. Oh
1: my God. About Harp, how
0: we need to.
1: Uh i mean, horrible. Yeah,
0: yeah. how, so how horrible. we need to. What is it? Call me by my pronoun or or something yeah. like that, which is just the lead in. Yeah, was it was just it was it was very disappointing. It and, was. and effectively, what it comes down to, I think, what that what it was Stanley Gold for far previously or, yeah. of the University of Pennsylvania yeah. what it was trying to say was that these these issues should not be at the detriment to learning the sciences. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing that try to make my podcast all about is. Everything we should have been learning while we were trying to learn the meds, exactly. the, the Krebs cycle. Exactly. But, but we I didn't know. need to learn the Krebs cycle I because I know <laughs> the fact that I now no longer remember where fumarate and malleate are in the Krebs cycle aren't going to help me to treat my patients, yeah. but, but acknowledging that there are structural, systemic issues yeah. that, that occur outside my office that led this patient to be in, now in front of me yeah. are going to help me to yeah. become a better doctor. Exactly. So,
1: Exactly. I didn't
0: put that in, in the questions. I apologize because that, that article it just, it just came, came out. out. Yeah. But but I'm, I'm wondering what, what were your without making your head explode, right? Because I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure you wanted you wanted to break something after reading that. But what what were, what were your thoughts on that article?
1: Well, yeah, no, I mean my my immediate thought was that okay, well that perspective is how we've gotten ourselves into a situation where we are like the of all industrialized countries we have the highest rates of health disparities and health inequities. It's because of that idea that we're only supposed to focus on the, the clinical aspect and not thinking about the broader structures and systems. And so I think we can do better. I, I disagree wholeheartedly with the premise of, of that article. And I, and I think a lot, of, a lot of physicians who want to do good work, I think they disagree as well.
0: I would agree. I would agree. I think all. I think all my listeners, if you're listening to this right now and you're trying to improve your ability to interact with your patients, clearly you think that that is.
1: Yeah. That is
0: that is more important than, than memorizing some of the basic science that you yeah. never end up applying.
1: Because because when we look at like which interventions make the biggest impact on health outcomes. Actually, what we do as physicians, like the the clinical interventions we make, they make the smallest impact. What makes the biggest impact on health outcomes are socioeconomic factors like poverty, education, housing, and inequality. And so that's why we as physicians need to be aware of those issues and to be educated about them as well.
0: And humbled by them. Yep. Right? Like there's... There's, and, and I could see how you're right. You're in the emergency department. I could see how that could be extremely frustrating, right? Because you're, you're treating the malady that you're seeing in front of you, right, but, right. but you can't improve the person's housing situation.
1: Exactly. exactly. Right? You can't help yeah. them
0: find healthy food. You can't help them to afford their medications regularly, right. which is why they keep ending up back in the ER.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Okay. Well, let's, let's go back to what we were talking to earlier. Is there anything cringeworthy that you see doctors doing that you just want to throttle them and say, stop doing that, right? What's something that, that, that you see maybe regularly, maybe not that that you would want to just take someone, sit them down and say, stop doing that.
1: Oh, not related to bias, right. It could be in general, right. could be in in general or, or, you know, either way. You know, I think for me, because I'm, I'm in emergency medicine, I think often what I see is physicians like not really listening to patients. And so I know it sounds so simple, but a lot of times I will try to just sit down on the stretcher with the patient, at least look them eye to eye and try to, and try to really listen to them because I feel like a lot of people come to the emergency department and a good number actually end up being okay, but they come for reassurance. And I think sometimes we don't realize that because we're in a rush and so I think just sitting down with them for a few minutes and really listening to them can do a lot of good.
0: Right. That empathy, that that empathic listening mm-hmm. in and of itself is is therapeutic yes. Right, because if they came in for reassurance and they feel like you weren't listening to them, exactly. they're not reassured. Right. Exactly. OK, same question, but now related to bias. So anything cringeworthy that you see doctors doing, really, yeah, yeah. I just, mean, like, yeah, like
1: in the emergency department, a lot, and I see people saying, "Oh, yeah, I gotta," you know, "oh, this patient, uh, I have a patient with sickle cell disease," or, "Oh, oh, here's this," "Oh, I got a undomiciled, you know, homeless guy over there." I'm like, we're just like really quick to put patients in categories, and I think because our brains are kind of lazy and we like to do that in order to conserve energy, but sometimes I just tell them like, "Hey, just." I know you feel like you've seen this patient before, but you haven't seen this one before, even though they may seem similar to you. Just take your time and you know go over there and just talk to them um without making the assumption. So practice that constructive uncertainty that you need to do so that you're not making assumptions about information that you don't know.
0: Excellent, yeah, I think that's that that's that's very helpful but but when we're we are you know if you have a resident that's that's presenting to you. How does the presentation differ if they're doing that, right? At least like the first yeah. line of the presentation. How would how would you see that change?
1: Well, instead of being like, "Oh yeah," so I got this this guy, this, you know, this they'll call like, "Oh, the, a sickler." Instead of seeing a patient, a patient with sickle cell disease,
0: you uh, know, like they'll yeah. just
1: and so that kind of is the signal to me that they are just sort of
0: it's flippant. Exactly. Is they're being flippant yes. about it. Yeah, yeah.
1: And, and we know that a lot of these patients actually end up being very sick. But because you're like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to give them some pain medication, then hopefully they'll, they'll go, then you'll end up actually missing something very serious on them.
0: So I actually did an interview a while ago with, with Stephanie Sog, who's a PhD in the weight center at Harvard, and we just talked about obesity. And, and one thing that she said was referring the pa- refer to the patient as, Having obesity, not right. as the obese patient, the patient right. with obesity. Right. Actually, she talked right. about not using the word obesity, yeah. but yeah. the her whole idea was that language matters yes. because language shapes our thoughts. Right. Sometimes in the direction that we don't think. It's not just thoughts that shape our language, but language that shapes our thoughts. And if you change the way that you're speaking about patients, that can actually be infectious and affect others. So if you know, so so you that that goes back to the modeling that we were talking about earlier. So if you you start saying this is a, you know, 24 year old male with sickle cell anemia, that right. that then becomes infectious. Right. Exactly. And the, the, hopefully the residents will start thinking of the patients different, talking about right. the patients differently. And then, right. and then that improves everybody's outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell us about, I think that's a good segue. Tell us about advancing health equity, your business venture.
1: Yeah. So advancing Health Equity actually formed the company earlier this year. I never thought I would be an entrepreneur, especially you know, going into medicine. It definitely wasn't something I had considered. But as I may have mentioned before, I started giving these unconscious bias trainings and getting really great reception. Then I started being asked to get them outside of, outside of the organization. And then I realized, it's said, hey, I need to take this show on the road. I should start my own business. And so I've been working with public health organizations, large position groups, and doing trainings around unconscious bias, inclusive leadership, uh, structural racism, um, and healthcare, developing an analytic tool to assess race equity in the culture of organizations. And so this is my, my small contribution to helping to address health disparities by making sure that we have a workforce that is trained to take care of a diverse patient population and to make sure that we have work environments and workplaces where um, a diverse workforce can can thrive.
0: So if people are interested in learning more about it, finding you online, how do they find you?
1: You can go to my website, www.advancinghealthequity.com.
0: Any final thoughts for our listeners on either advancing health equity or recruiting, retaining, and including people? And I, And I just I read this on Twitter. I think it was FOD, foreign, other, different. Someone who is foreign, other, oh, or yeah. different to your organization.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think I just want everyone to remember, especially you know, people who are in the healthcare professions, realize that we have a huge impact, even in personal, interpersonal interactions with our patients on their health outcomes. And so we should really be thinking about the biases that we're bringing to that encounter, but also about the systems and structures around that patient and and where that patient lives and where they work that are also influencing their health status. And so I think if we realize both those things, that we can actually provide better care to our patients.
0: Fantastic. Well, You are extremely busy between your family, your practice, and this new business. And I wish you the best of luck with advancing health equity. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Bradley Block at The Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at PhysiciansGuideToDoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on The Physician's Guide to Doctoring.